You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I am The Miracle Hunter and creator of the website, MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we continue our weekly exploration of the world of miracles. Today should be a great show. Uh, I'll be interviewing an author, Patricia Treese. Now, she's the author of several Catholic books on saints and miracles, and her latest work is entitled Nothing Short of a Miracle. We'll be discussing how the Church investigates and judges miracles, especially with regard to those that are validated in sainthood causes. Uh, Her book is sort of an expert uh, analysis of this, so it should be very interesting. And of course, in just a bit, we'll be asking you a Catholic trivia question, so get your pens and paper ready. Later in the show, we'll be talking about how Our Lady is honored around the world on today, February 18th. More information on this project can be found at 365dayswithmary.com or on Facebook, 365 Days with Mary. Now, today in Miracle News, we have some very interesting news coming from the scientific community regarding the Shroud of Turin, uh, which, of course, is the purported burial cloth of Christ. Uh, This is a 14-foot-long image of a bearded man, uh, to pick someone uh, who's been deeply wounded, uh, matching the descriptions with great accuracy in the gospel. Tradition holds this, in fact, to be the burial cloth of Christ. However, in ni- 1988, carbon-14 testing was done at the University of Arizona and other labs around the world that put the date somewhere in the Middle Ages, causing many of the scientific community to declare this as a clear forgery. Now, the Vatican has never commented about the authenticity, but recognizes it as an object of devotion. They will be putting it on display for the world to see. This only happens uh, once every several years at best. Now, despite the dating of the carbon dating of the Shroud of Turin to be in the Middle Ages, the scientific community still cannot explain how the Shroud image was in fact created. Now, there is no pigment, there's no paint found on the image, and only a single layer of the fibers have been affected. Uh, And what was discovered in this last century is that it's only best viewed in the photographic negative. You can really see the face of the man who looks like Christ in the photographic negative. So whatever the dating is indicated, we are always left to wonder how did the image get there. Some scientists believe that neutron radiation would be the explanation for the skewed carbon-14 dating results. Now, once again, the Shroud of Turin is in the news. Uh, This time, uh, it's because of a new paper entitled, Is the Shroud of Turin in Relation to the Old Jerusalem Historical Earthquake? That was just published in the journal Mechanica, and it's authored by three scientists, Capinteri, Latkedonna, and Borla, 
And this paper asserts that neutron radiation generated by a major earthquake, a a magnitude 8.2 earthquake in the year 33 AD in Jerusalem, could have in fact created this influx of uh, neutron radiation. Could this be the reason the carbon dating is skewed? Um, I should point out that the idea of radiation uh, creating the image on the shroud or skewing the radiation dating is not a new theory. Uh, the only new information that seems to be in this hypothesis, hypothesis is that uh, the neutron radiation was produced by as a byproduct of a major earthquake, which geology can assign to that date in 33. Um, it's still a theory at best. Science does point to the fact that the cloth has, in fact, been irradiated, so we do know that there was radiation of some sort. Now, did the body itself create the radiation? We may never know. The scientific community will be still evaluating this paper, and we'll report back when we hear any new developments or analysis. To keep up to date with the latest in Miracle News, please visit MiracleHunter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a monthly email with the latest Miracle Hunter news, including reports on the latest miracles and news stories, links to past radio episode podcasts, updates on my television series, Miracle Hunters, now in development, and my book, Hunting for a Miracle, due out in fall 2014, any upcoming speaking engagements, and much, much more. So sign up for the newsletter on MiracleHunter.com by clicking the newsletter link at the bottom of the page. So now we'll do our Ask the Miracle Hunter segment, uh, which we're opening up the mailbag or the email inbox, as it were. And I got a interesting question this past week on a curious subject that I think most Roman Catholics aren't even aware of. The question goes like this, Dear Miracle Hunter, I'd be interested to know if the holy fire at the Holy Sepulchre was ever researched being an Orthodox miracle. Peace, A.K. Fleming. Well, thanks very much, A.K., for that uh, interesting question. And for people who don't know, uh, I'll explain what the Holy Fire is. Every Easter, now that's Easter according to the Greek Orthodox calendar, the Greeks claim that the fire spontaneously lights the candles held by the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem as he prays at the tomb of Christ. Now, it seems that this alleged miracle is something that has never really been tested fully. Uh, Skeptics have tried to duplicate this uh, supposed miracle by dipping candles in a substance which will delay the ignition and have suggested that uh, perhaps something is dripped onto the candle. The substance that uh, is able to delay ignition, they say, has been around for uh, many hundreds of years. This may be a miracle, uh, but I tend to think not. I don't really know. Uh, if, but if it's not, it requires a certain trickery by the Orthodox that would seem very strange indeed. The interesting thing that if it is a fraud, it goes back to at least 1,600 years. So thanks, A.K., for your question. And you can read more about the Holy Fire Miracle of the Orthodox Church on the website MiracleHunter.com. You can always send the Miracle Hunter a question at questions at MiracleHunter.com, and we'll select one per week to be read on the show. Now it's time for Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week, I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize for a caller that gets the right answer. This week, as in past weeks, we'll be giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork entitled The Faces of Mary. 
It's a photo mosaic of over 100 images of Our Lady that forms a large, beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. Trivia questions are generously provided by Catholic Pub Trivia, an organization that partners with Catholic parishes, schools, or religious organizations to host Trivia Night fundraisers at local establishments. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. We always try to keep the questions relating to the theme of the day's program. And today we're going to be talking about how miracles are used in canonization causes, and we'll be discussing the upcoming canonization of John Paul II. So here's today's question. What term, originating for the official person nominated to argue against a saint's cause for canonization, is commonly used for a person taking the opposite position in an argument? That question again, what term originating for the person nominated to argue against a saint's cause for canonization is commonly used for a person taking the opposite position in an argument? And for more information on the program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. Each week we'll be doing a segment entitled 365 Days with Mary. Now, for each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world, there's a Marian title, a feast, or commemoration of an apparition, or other miraculous event that is being celebrated. It never ceases to amaze me how much the world loves the Mother of God and honors her throughout the year. Now, I've collected all these dates with their feasts and put them into one resource. It's called 365 Days with Mary. Each entry features images, a description, and history of the feast day, along with information on the shrines associated with them, including visitor information and links in case you want to go check out any of these places. You'll find a prayer for each title of Our Lady, so you can pray to her under a different title each day of the year. The project is available in print form in a daily calendar organizer, as well as online at 365dayswithmary.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter, where if you like us, you can automatically receive information about each feast day and learn more about our Blessed Mother and how she's honored around the world. So check out 365 Days with Mary to see the project, and the print version in the form of a daily organizer makes a great gift for anyone with a devotion to Our Lady. Now for today, February 18th, there are a number of Greek and Russian icons of Our Lady that are honored, including the Seeker of the Lost, and the Rescuer of the Drowning. Now, you can go to the site to check those out. But today I'd like to tell you a little bit about a Spanish statue of Our Lady of the Rosary, and it's yet another instance where Our Lady comes to our aid at our time of great need. Our Lady of the Rosary is the patron saint of Rota, which is an Atlantic coastal town in southern Spain. Her statue dates to the 1500s, and it occupies a blue-tiled chapel in the parish church, of Nuestra Señora de la O. On this day, uh, February 18th, in 1807, Rota's town council ordered that it be carried in procession along with the Statue of Christ from the chapel and that people were to pray for an end to a severe drought that was striking that town. Rains came immediately after the prayers were finished and saved the crops there. The statue is a candelero image, and it's designed to be dressed, and it's got these finely carved and painted head hands and child Jesus 
and it's all mounted on a very plain uh, pedestal or support. On October 7, 2003, this image, the Virgin del Rosario, was canonically crowned by the Bishop of the Diocese of Jerez, Acedonia Don Juan del Rio Martin. So that was today's feast, Our Lady of the Rosary of Rota, Spain. Be sure to visit the Project 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and online, 365dayswithmary.com, to find out more about this devotion or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions celebrated around the world. Now, this is Michael O'Neill. You are listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. We are talking today with author Patricia Treese, and for more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. Now, our guest on today's program is Patricia Treese. She's the author of numerous books on subjects of saints and miracles, and her latest work is entitled Nothing Short of a Miracle, a book from Sophia Institute Press. I'd like to welcome to the show today, Patricia Treese. Thank you, Michael. Hi, Patricia. Welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for letting me talk about the saints. <laughs> That's what I love more. Now, now tell us, Patricia, how did you get the idea to write this book uh, about the saints and nothing short of a miracle? What inspired you to write, write this work? Well, it, in the long term, uh, you know, I'm a convert, and I discovered the saints uh, shortly after my conversion, which occurred uh, at the Grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes and through the good offices of a passionist brother um, uh, right after I had graduated from college. So when I discovered the saints, it was, it was love at first, uh, <laughs> first notice, um, and I, I began, um, I, I was a, a journalism and liberal arts major, and it turned out that God had positioned me, He'd given me the gifts and the research ability and all these things for a career that I never knew I would have, <laughs> which would be writing uh, to let people know about God's friends, the saints, so that people would know more about God and how much He loves us and how much He can transform us. Um, and as I started researching for my new career, I kept coming up against these wonderful miracles, these healings, and I specialize in modern saints for authenticity and mm-hmm. you know, making sure that my research can be um, absolutely correct or as absolutely correct as a human being can be. Um, and so I, I began collecting these for myself in part because it was discovered that I had some sort of hereditary disease called polycystic disease of the kidneys and the liver and so on. Um, so they encouraged me, and I, sure. I did that for years. I just collected them. And then when my uh, daughter, um, as, a, um, as a child, uh, had cancer and survived against uh, what was first uh, uh, diagnosed, I was so grateful that I wanted to encourage other people that um, that the Lord is there and that through saints living and dead, um, we can find friends who will pray for us. It's not the only way. You were just talking about the Blessed Mother, and many people will always turn to the Blessed Mother yeah. uh, for their prayer intercession. Um, and some people just um, want to just 
go straight to Jesus and not think about anybody else. And that's all that's all fine. We have this big wonderful church with so many different ways to be a wonderful Catholic. But for yeah. me, it, it was so um, heartening to find the saints and, and to find that they were so willing to pray for us and that God was so willing to honor their prayers with miracles. So I wanted to share that with people, and that uh, is why I wrote the book in 1987, uh, when it was a double-day image book. But, of course, the last miracles in the book were 1987. <laughs> I decided not too long ago that um, I really wanted to update it so people could know that miracles are going on all around us still. And I wanted to bring in some of the more modern saints, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta and Fulton Sheen and uh, John Paul II and you know the, the people who were really right up to the up to the minute. Uh, so that's what I've done, and um, and I'm so thrilled because when I read these things, they they give me a boost in my faith, just as I hope they do for other people. Yes, I know that the 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 saints and the miracles of the saints often provide a boost uh, for the faith of people, and uh, they are very important to the lives of the faithful. Um, now, can you ex- explain to us a little bit? Now, obviously, uh, Protestants uh, would, would disagree with this, but what is the Catholic understanding of the intercessory power of the saints? You know, having come out of a Protestant family, I find if it's explained to them that it's right there in the Scripture, people turning to Peter and Paul and, and the other apostles for prayer, uh, and that we're just turning to people for prayer. We're not making them into God or or anything like that. We're just asking them to pray for us the way many of us ask our our holier relatives to pray for us. Uh, they don't have uh, a big problem with it. Uh, sometimes they have problems with words like, I'm going to pray to Mary, uh, whereas if we explain it, I'm going to ask Mary to pray for me or to yeah. be with me then they say, oh, okay. <laughs> so, anyway, but our understanding of the intercession of the saints is that from the beginning of the Church, uh, Jesus has used other people. He didn't. He could have healed everybody all, you know, all by himself, but he sent out 72 to uh, go around and, and bring his healing uh, to others, and uh, God is still sending his healing to others through our our prayers, we ordinary people, and through the the prayer of the saints. And besides being great prayer intercessors, they are wonderful role models. All the way back again to the to the disciples. Um, St. Paul even says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And we see this beautiful line. It just is so awe-inspiring to me. All the way back to Peter and to Thomas, who left all those Thomas Christians in India, and, and um, each of the saints uh, leaving disciples, so to speak, who who learned about Jesus and how to follow Jesus through following someone who knew him well and and followed him. And as we look down the centuries, we've got We've got Augustinians, we've got Benedictines, we've got Dominicans, Franciscans. Um, we, we've got all these people with just this little take 
on how they, in their particular temperament, would follow the Lord. I love St. Peter because he was a bumbler, and I mean so well, but I bumble all the time. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I know for me personally, having uh, my, my parents r- given me a book on the lives of the saints as a, as a youngster and reading that book to me, that was that really uh, molded my faith and sort of seeing the example of uh, these great men and women who lived out their faith in their own unique ways. So uh, I think following the lives of the saints is very important for, for Catholics and young Catholics. Um, yes, n- we, we, need, we need those role models. And I was so lucky as a little Protestant kid because I used to go play at a Catholic child's house and she had comic book lives of the saints. I don't know if you read them, but I loved them. (laughs) Just loved them. That's great. Whatever way we can bring the saints' lives to our own lives is great. And uh, now, so we talked a little bit about uh, the importance of uh, the intercession of the saints and how many Catholics turn to these saints. Now, of course, miracles are used by the Church in canonization causes, and those are used as sort of evidence that the Church or that these saints have, in fact, worked the miracle that, that were, they were prayed uh, to intercede on. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, how miracles are used uh, for canonization causes? Yes, I can, because, again, I think it's so beautiful. The Catholic Church is so uh, determined not to be misled, and so the Church really investigates someone who uh, dies with a reputation for holiness. It's not just automatic that you're your reputation for holiness is going to lead to your being named a formal saint who will be held up as a reliable prayer intercessor and a role model of the particular way that you lived your life to follow the Lord. Uh, It takes a lot of investigating into uh, your life, and people are, are... giving testimonies under oath, and there's, it just, um, all this um, rational process, almost like, a, almost like a trial in a way, is carried on. But then there comes a point where they say, okay, we have figured out that this person is heroically virtuous, not just virtuous, but heroically virtuous. Yeah. This person has no will but God's will in their life. They... They didn't try to push themselves. They only wanted to push God, and they wanted whatever God wanted was what they wanted. Um, but at that point, now that, that human investigation has done all it can, it's thought that we should let God speak. Does God want this person to be held up as a role model and as a prayer intercessor? And the way that, that we let God speak is we wait for God to work a miracle in honor of this person whose prayers are being asked, whose prayer intercession is being asked. Um, And when that occurs, when someone asks the prayer intercession of a Mother Teresa or Fulton Sheen or or, uh, Father Solanus Casey or uh, whoever is being looked at and... um, and that a miracle actually occurs, then that miracle is studied with a fine-tooth comb, and if it is found that it really is a miracle according to the seven uh, principles that were laid down way way back by a, a, a cardinal who later became 
uh, Pope Benedict the Fifteenth. Then uh, we know that we have God's vote of approval, and that's very important. That's great. Um, for those just tuning in, this is Michael O'Neill, and you're listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. We're talking today with author Patricia Treese. Now, you are talking about uh, that's how uh, miracles were used in canonization causes. How? When did the Church start doing these highly sent? Uh, scientific, highly rational investigations, rather than just sort of the popular acclaim of a saint uh, for their holiness. When did these scientific and more serious investigations first start happening in Church history? You know, Michael, I'm not sure of the exact date. I'm not sure whose was the first uh, beatification or canonization to, to be done this way. But I know that it was several centuries ago, at least. Uh, as you say, at first it was sort of um, by by being a martyr. It was felt that yeah. the martyrs who shed their blood uh, that that was that was God's sign, because for someone to be able to give up their life for Jesus Christ, to not deny Him, um, that is that in itself is a very important and beautiful sign. Um, and at first it was thought that that was what made someone a, a saint, was giving up their life. But we know that once Constantine had accepted the faith, it wasn't as easy to get yourself martyred. And so people went out to the desert uh, and began to live uh, what they called white martyrdom. They began to... Uh, to maybe be hermits and and live for God through prayer and fasting and uh, great um, asceticism of of food and drink and uh, clothing and so on. And so it gradually uh, came to to move into this more rational thing that um, it wasn't necessarily about being a martyr. And it was in the 1600s that... uh, uh, Cardinal Lambertini, the future uh, Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, laid down the seven criteria. Uh, I don't know if they had being, been being used informally, uh, because since my main interest of research is modern saints, I don't always know everything sure. about uh, the the old saints. Although, of course, I love some of them very much too. We all we all do, I think. Yes, the saints are important uh, to to all of us, the old and the new. And now you mentioned uh, uh, something that stuck out to me, the seven uh, criteria or uh, steps that are in a uh, verification of a miracle. What can you you tell us about those seven steps? Well, um, I can tell you what they are, the seven criteria for for a miracle, uh, which does not say... That, um, that other things that happen are not miracles. It just says, if this is going to be a miracle proclaimed by the Church formally for the beatification, and then a, a second one at this time, uh, used to require more, uh, for uh, canonization, these uh, criteria must be met. And the first one, when you think about it, is just common sense. The disease has to be something really serious. 
you know, you can't get your hangnail miraculously <laughs> cured and uh, have that be called a, a miracle. Um, right. So it, something has to be really uh, just about impossible or very, very difficult to cure by human means. So many times these are terminal situations, uh, the last stages of, of Parkinson's, say, or the last uh, terminal uh, stage of, of a cancer, or the last uh, uh, terminal stage of, of MS, or other things that just aren't that um, uh, able to be turned back by medicine once they reach a certain point. And, and that's the second point is the disease uh, has to be at a stage at which it's not liable to disappear shortly, you know, by itself. We, we know, especially before we had antibiotics, that uh, a very uh, serious disease like, say, smallpox or diphtheria might come to a point where it's just... Um, uh, about ready to kill the person, and then a few mm-hmm. will survive. But we have to be sure that whatever disease in somebody who claims a miracle is being studied is not at a stage at which this could happen, that it could just um, disappear shortly by itself. And And today, of course, it's very hard to find something that hasn't been given medical treatment. Right. Because who has anything serious almost always has medical treatment. Is that a requirement uh, for one of these miracles to be approved, that uh, uh, there's been no medical treatment whatsoever on the case? Well, that's preferable, of course. But if there has been medical treatment, it must be certain that the treatment given has no reference to the cure. And I could just mention an example. Uh, the woman whose uh, who's miracle from terminal liver cancer uh, was accepted for the beatification of Blessed Francis Xavier Silos, uh, whose shrine is in New Orleans, for instance. Um, she had been opened up um, for this uh, cancer in her liver. It was found that there was just no liver left. It was all cancer. So mm. they closed up and told her that she had two weeks to live. Um, but before the two weeks was over, she had visited the shrine and knelt at the grave, and she was starting to get better. At the end of maybe a month, they finally got around, because they thought she was dying, so there was no rush. They finally got around to putting her on a chemo. But the Protestant doctors were very happy to testify that this chemo had never healed anybody, Mm. uh, and it didn't heal her because she was already healed, you know, before she ever got on the chemo. And the amazing thing was that this uh, chemo, which was one of those mustard gases from World War I, was supposed to layer up for a year and do all these kind of things, and it didn't do anything to her. Mm. Um, So... Either no medical treatment must have been given, or it has to be very, very clear that whatever treatment was given has no reference to the to the cure. Sure. Uh, and that also includes, you know, they're just so careful about all this that there has not been any crisis uh, which would make it possible the cure was wholly or partially natural. And an mm. example of that is the young girl who had leukemia who uh, became one of the beatification miracles for Mother Seton, uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Uh, 
she was um, uh, dying with leukemia. This is back in the 1940s when there was no treatment for childhood leukemia. And she got chicken pox very severely with a very high fever. Now, sometimes after a very high fever or a very virulent virus, uh, children would go into remission. And so it's possible that she went into remission from those things. But when they really studied it, they found that all the children who went into remission, this might last a year or two years or three years, but the disease always came back. Mm. And her from the moment that her mother and her family and the nurse, who was a member of uh, Mother Seton's order, began to pray to Mother Seton for her prayer intercession, the child began to get better. Mm-hmm. So if the experts and the people who study this, by the way, don't have to be Catholics. They just have to be experts in, in the disease. They could even be an atheist, because even an mm-hmm. atheist can say there's no human explanation for this. Right. Uh, so they found in her case that there was no way that this uh, chicken pox and fever uh, obtained her permanent cure. Okay. And and that leads us to the to the the three things that are probably the most important. The cure must be permanent. Yes. The cure must be complete. And by complete, I'll give you another example. There was a young boy who. Um, was blind and going to a school for the blind. He and his mother were at Lourdes doing the Stations of the Cross, and he looked up at his mother and he said, Oh, Mom, how beautiful you are. He could see. Mm. As the diseases of the eyes that make it impossible for him to see. Mm-hmm. So that's a miracle, but it's not one of these miracles that could be accepted for a beatification because it's not complete. Sure. Uh, so, and it has to be secure or, or very quickly. Okay. Now, what, what you mentioned the last uh, element was la- that it must be a lasting miracle. What is the amount of time that must pass that the Church determines that it's been a lasting miracle? Well, for a long time, you had to die. <laughs> oh. And once you died, and they could see that you died of something else, uh, then they they would say, okay, this is a lasting miracle. And then with all the advances, particularly in cancer, they started going for um, when the doctors would say that, that the cancer had achieved a cure. For instance, mm-hmm. in the case of my daughter, uh, after five years, they said my daughter was cured, and now it's been decades and my daughter is cured. But uh, but she's not a she's not a, a beatification or canonization miracle. I'm just using her as an example. Sure. But recently, uh, the doctors in Rome have gotten worried that uh, maybe five years isn't enough, and mm. so they're they're going back to um, to wanting to to wait uh, much longer. And that was one reason our our uh, dear John Paul II lowered the number of miracles that were required. It wasn't because there were fewer miracles occurring. It was because if you had to wait, let's say they still required two to four miracles for beatification and the same number for canonization, and you had to wait for all these people to die 
to prove it was permanent. You know, it could take such a long time to put these role models in yes. front of people. That's very interesting. Um, yes, it is. Now, now, so you listed all seven for us. Uh, that was great. I, I had only really heard the, those last three, the permanent, complete, and lasting. So I think, I think that was very interesting to hear that whole list of seven. Um, one question that I have is, are all the miracles that are used in canonization causes always healing miracles, or are there miracles of other types that can be considered? Uh, there are miracles of other types, certainly, that happen through the prayer intercession of, um, of the Holy, but they do use the medical healings, and I think that's because uh, they can really get a, a handle on those. Um, uh, let's take something like the miracle of the sun at Fatima. They had many witnesses. Yeah. Uh, different witnesses saw different things, depending on how God uh, worked in their particular life. When you've got a, a medical healing, uh, you can bring in the diocesan um, doctors and do a full investigation. If, if they come up with, yes, this meets the seven criteria, and we can't see any human uh, way this could have happened. Then it goes to Rome, and they bring in a whole new set of doctors, and they go over the whole thing again. And then they bring in the theologians. Was this really through the through asking the prayer intercession of this particular saint, or was it through asking several saints? In which case, it won't qualify. And you know, so they can they can do this incredibly intense um, investigation when they have a physical cure. Yeah, and I think you touched on one point that, that's very interesting that maybe most people miss, is that uh, in beatification and canonization causes, when they're looking for miracles, the people must only pray, pray to that singular saint. Um, we, when, we're, when we're in trouble health-wise or other, we're calling on all our, our favorite saints, St. Saint Francis and St. Therese and John Paul II and and whatever our whole litany of saints we're calling on when we're in trouble. So it's always amazing that people um, appeal to just a singular saint, a person who has not yet been canonized. Can you talk a little bit about that, that the prayers need to be focused on a unique saint? Yes, um, and you know, often it's not the person in need who's doing this. Many times it will be, uh, well, take the case of that little girl with leukemia, the... um, Mother Seton founded the the Daughters of Charity in the U.S., and it was her order that was looking for miracles to further her cause. And Mm. one of the nurses at the hospital uh, where this little Ann O'Neill was was being treated uh, said to the mother, um, who just was such a woman of faith, um, and she had been praying to St. Therese, but she felt St. Therese led her to pray to Mother Seton along mm. with with the nurse, uh, who was a member of this order. So they got this big thing going. They called on all the school children. They called on the members of the order. They called on the friends and relatives to all focus on asking the prayer, the intercessory prayer, that God would send a miracle to show Mother Seton's holiness. Wow, that's so interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
needs to happen. Yeah, and and it is. Uh, of course, sometimes people have been known. I'm not naming any names, but if you want to look at me, you could. Sometimes people have have been known to threaten the state, <laughs> make one more novena to you, and if you don't pony up, if you don't get God to give this healing for this person, I pray for. <laughs> I'm going to turn to another saint who also needs a miracle. Um, yeah, we all have so. we all have different approaches. That that that's so funny. And uh, <laughs> yep. And you're listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. We're talking today with author Patricia Treese. And um, Patricia, I thought that was that was uh, very interesting. That it's not always the person who uh, who's having the physical malady that will be be praying for for the healing. It may be others. Do you can you comment? Do you do you have any idea whether more miracles that are approved come from the prayers of the person suffering from the illness or from outsiders? Is it is that is that known at all? Which which is more frequent to happen? Well, I, I don't know that you know we can give a statistic, but I do sure. know, for instance, the the prologue of my book is about a miracle through Mother Cabrini when she was not yet. Uh, beatified or anything, and this miracle went to an infant, um, and so obviously he couldn't pray for himself, um, right, right. and uh, then I know of a man who was uh, dying of cirrhosis of liver in a coma. Um, he had lost his battle with alcohol, but somebody else who had great faith um, prayed for him, and he was given a miracle. Um, who gets a miracle is a great mystery of God's grace. And uh, we must never feel that because we aren't really holy ourselves that we can't pray for someone's miracle or we can't ask God for a miracle through uh, one of his holy people for ourselves. Yes. And um, that that's absolutely right. We can always pray. And um, now when you... Can you take us through a little bit of... Uh, canonization causes and beatification causes. At what point uh, are they evaluating sort of the heroic virtue of the person, and at what point are they actually, uh, is the postulator collecting all the claims of miracles and presenting those? Can you, can you walk us through a little bit of the, the steps that are involved in a, in a canonization cause? Yes, I, I'd be happy to, because I've learned so much, and in writing these uh, these books, and the introduction does go into this in detail, and I'm happy to share what I've learned. Uh, the first thing that you want to do, of course, is to find that this person you're studying um, is worthy, and they are worthy if, as I mentioned earlier, they have God's will in place of their own will, and if they practice virtue heroically. So that's the first thing that needs to be studied, and that is done by taking under oath testimonies from the people who knew them. I'm talking about modern saints. Now, there could yes. be a cause for someone who's been dead 500 years. Yes. That would be a different uh, a, a historical uh, right. project investigation. Uh, but once you have uh, interviewed uh, at least a very big sample, as big a sample as you can, of people who knew the person, and you get some idea of their virtue. When I say heroic virtue, let me give you an example. Someone once uh, took exception to uh, St. John Bosco 
bringing so many young slum boys to Jesus. And this person uh, decided to kill him. So they came up to an open window. This is in the northern part of Italy in the summer, and the windows were open uh, when uh, Don Bosco, uh, Don being the Italian title for priest, was teaching a group of boys. The person took a gun, and they leaned in, and they shot Don Bosco, and it missed by a hair's breadth. Mm. Now, Don Bosco, instead of trying to get this person prosecuted to the full extent of the law for attempted murder, uh, built this man a house secretly. He was a poor man. Mm. And, and he built him a house secretly because he said, we must do good to our enemies. We must mm. love those who try to do evil to us. That's heroic virtue. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, when the investigation has determined that there is true heroic virtue in someone's life, then they are given the title venerable, worthy of veneration. Mm. And at that point, their holiness, uh, from a human point of view, has been established. You can't get any holier than a venerable. Mm-hmm. But God may not want every venerable to be canonized and beatified. And so that's when we turn to this investigation, asking God to work uh, miracles through uh, people requesting the intercessory prayer of this uh, saint. Uh, Saint as in the sense of they are worthy of veneration. When that investigation has found that there truly is a miracle, It doesn't stop with the medical investigation. As I mentioned, it goes to the theologians who must uh, investigate whether it truly was through the intercession of this individual. And after they have um, come to a positive conclusion, it goes to another commission, which is made up of a select group of cardinals and archbishops representing the Church. So we've had We've had science speak through the medicine. We've had theology speak. Now we have the church speak. Do they see that this will be worthwhile to hold this person up before the entire church if a canonization or before a limited portion of the church if a venerable, um, uh, pardon me, with a a beatification? And if they agree that, yes, this this is somebody that is really needed as a role model and intercessor, then it goes to the Holy Father. And the Holy, Holy Father has the last word. He mm-hmm. might decide uh, to postpone the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Might, no, this is a person who's controversial, and we, we better wait a few decades. Or mm-hmm. he might as he did recently, uh, uh, Benedict, uh, that, uh, and then uh, Pope uh, Francis, that John the Twenty Third, for instance, who had one miracle as a sign, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't have to wait around for another miracle because his whole life uh, of virtue was so extraordinary that. Uh, that in itself, with the miracle, is enough of a sign, and the canonization can go forward. So it all comes down to the Holy Father, 
Um, hmm. But he does not act without taking into consideration all these other groups who have spoken for science and theology and for the church. That's that's very interesting. Thank you for thank you for laying out that that whole that whole process out. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And uh, we w- now one question one one other question I had was we have these stories of saints who have a reputation for holiness and for healing powers while alive. Uh, you can look at the case of uh, Solanus Casey, for example. Are yes. canonization causes able to take into account? Uh, Miracles who uh, performed by saints when they were living. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, the um, they they may um, recognize that someone, uh, as you mentioned, to Father Solanus Casey, uh, had uh, the charism, the gift of being able to bring God's healing. It's never their own healing. God is the healer. Right. Uh, but their prayers may do incredible uh, things while they're alive to heal people, and not just physically, uh, but, you know, heal all kinds of things in people. Uh, But when they have died, then we go through that thing of determining that they really are worthy of veneration, and then God must speak at that point. You can't dredge up some incredible miracle that happened during their lifetime. And, and that's because of the way the Church has laid this out. Okay. And uh, now your, the title of your book uh, is Nothing Short of a Miracle, and that's out now. And uh, you cover the life and the miracles of John Paul II, and of course his uh, canonization is, is quickly approaching us. What can you tell us, what, what can we find in the book when we get the book? What will we learn about John Paul II? Well, I want to share with you something that was was uh, news to me. <laughs> I was so surprised to discover that during his lifetime, John Paul II was one of those saints with a charism of healing. Mm-hmm. He did such a fabulous job of keeping it undercover, um, and and I thought that I knew a lot about John Paul II. I don't mean I'm an expert. Um, it's John the 23rd that I wrote a whole book on, uh-huh. not Paul the Second. But, you know, I, I had read uh, quite a few biographies, and I, I, thought I, I thought I understood him pretty well. But, um, but I, that was something I had no idea. Um, he just uh, refused to discuss any stories of his miracles during his lifetime. I say his, they were God's miracles worked through his prayers. But um, I don't know if everybody else besides me knew that, but <laughs> I didn't know it, and it it was amazing to me. Um, and I also was amazed to see how God used everything in his life. Um, you know, not all healers are saints. People can have a charism of healing and not be a saint at all. So we have sure. to be careful when we run around trying to find a live person, you know, to pray for us. Mm. There are even our evil people who who pretend to heal people. You know, we have to, we have to be pretty careful. True, that's good it's advice. Not all, um, saints. all saints are healers, and, I, and they may not have the healing power. We'll take Fulton Sheen, for instance, or Mother Cabrini. During their lives, there there may not be. 
um, known healings, but they were still healing because to be around them, they exuded God's love, and that was healing to people, and many times changed their lives, even though uh, these uh, particular holy people had no charism of, of giving God's physical healing. Oh, that, that's very well put. Well, thank you so much, Patricia, for joining us on today's show. You've been really enlightening about the saints and about miracles, and uh, we'll all look forward to, to purchasing your book, and that's available in bookstores and on Amazon.com. Is that correct? It is, or at the publisher, or see your local Catholic bookstore, but definitely you can buy it at barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, all all the usual places. Uh, And thank you so much, Michael. I just have enjoyed this so much, being able to share some things about about the dear saints. Um, uh, Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you. God bless you, too. And that's uh, that was Patricia Treese, uh, author of Nothing Short of a Miracle uh, from Sophia Institute Press. Uh, we thank her for joining us on today's program. And uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, just wanted to let you know, on March 29th, I'll be giving a talk at a Totally Yours Pilgrimage in Rolling Meadows, Illinois. I'll be discussing how the Medjugorje apparitions are similar to and different from other apparitions throughout history. For more information on attending this conference, please visit totallyyours.com or miraclehunter.com. And be sure to visit miraclehunter.com as your resource for miracles and keep up to date with how Our Lady is honored around the world at 365dayswithmary.com. Thank you for joining me on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill.